Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Utah has been the focal point for many brave settlers yearning for a new way of life. And while Utah's Mormon legacy is well documented, there are lesser known stories that contribute to the state's history. In her book, Hidden History of Utah, public historian, author, and history columnist Eileen Hallett Stone looks into the state's forgotten past and presents a collection of tales culled from her Salt Lake Tribune Living History column. Included here are stories of newly freed slaves, early suffragists, desert farmers, and union men, as well as railroad kinks, cattle barons, influential statesmen, and more. Eileen Hallett Stone is author of A Homeland in the West, Utah Jews Remembered, and co-author of Missing Stories, an oral history of ethnic minority groups in Utah. And we welcome her in. Eileen Hallett Stone, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much, Tom. Very delighted to be here. This is uh, some very interesting stories, some, uh, very few that I had heard of, but uh, most of these were totally new to me, uh, other than those I may have caught uh, in your column, the Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, how did this, uh, how did the column start? Well, I was having a morning cup of coffee with an editor from Salt Lake Tribune, Peg McEntee, and um, she asked me if I would be willing to write some words about people. And it was delightful. After the sixth cup of coffee, I love coffee, um, I agreed. And she is an incredible editor. And she, the, the requirements for me were really very few. I could write about anything I wanted, within reason. Um, I had to be approximately 650 words long, often no more. They can cut you down easily. And uh, there was no money for travel. So I did all the traveling in my studio. I went up to the University of Utah to special collections. I called friends. And um, somehow stories follow me. I don't know why. And that's how it all started. Uh, it's very interesting. You mentioned coffee, and that's the subject, I think, of your latest column. I know. Yeah. I have a bit of a cold, and I had a cup of coffee, and... It just sparked something in me. I went, oh, I wonder about coffee in Utah. And um, there was a lot of coffee in Utah. That's something you maybe wouldn't think, given to, you know, to the climate of, the, of today in the LDS Church. You wouldn't think there was wine either, mm -hmm. or beer. And, but, and there was. Yes, there was a lot of beer. And it was, um, actually, there was beer in the, just by Immigration Canyon. There was um, a... Um, Sorry. There was a company there, a, where, a beer company there. It was started by a, a Jewish immigrant, and it was um, well-known, and it was started before the 1900s. Hmm. What about during Prohibition? Well, during Prohibition, from what I gather, there was no beer, unless it was in the homes of people. Hmm. And I believe it was in the homes of people. I don't think you can get rid of anything, like beer or liquor, even though I know that the Salt Lake City streets were flooding with, with liquor bottles being opened. But they were in the basements, they were in men's clubs. Um, but for the companies themselves, I think that they ended up doing like beerless beer, like mm. soda. Oh, interesting. Um, in your introduction, uh, you state that most know Utah's history as self-created homogenous state governed by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, whose members are known as Mormons. Lesser known are the individual histories of those who challenged and broadened the status quo. It, is, that your, is that your mission with the column? Those you know, it's funny. I, I'm not exactly sure. All I know is that there, there has to be more to every state. There has to be a lot to Utah that made Utah what it is and continues to make Utah what it is. And so... I looked everywhere. I also wrote about peaches, by the way. That was very interesting, yeah. So that's not really a minority. That's, that's true. By the way, let's pause by, right there and have you tell that story. Oh, really? Well, then I have to look it up. Okay. Yeah, this is um, a, a, a Utah invented, a, I guess, a, a better peach. He did. Is that the case? He was actually a doctor, and he moved to, to um, Kaysville, or just outside Kaysville, and he, he perfected a peach that had to travel. He got a peach from, I think, South Carolina and from a, a nursery. And he propagated the peach in such a way that it arrived, it um, matured earlier than other peaches. Hmm. And um, that was one good thing. The other good thing was that it had to be able to travel. 
It had to be able to travel to customers all over the country. And that's exactly what he did. He perfected a peach that had a hard enough skin to take traveling. And to and it did travel. I think it went something like 2,000 more miles on a train, on a, on a mail, uh, in the mail. And it made it all over the country and, and wound up back in Utah without a blemish to it. Mm. Um, you are, I believe, a, a transplant from New England? Yes, I am. I'm from Boston and Maine, so my accent changes. When I'm in Boston, I'm fairly proper, and when I move to Maine, um, I'm still proper, but more forgiving, more mm. open, very curious. I think living in Maine made me curious about a lot of different people. Well, how, why? Well, in some ways, I grew up possibly as a minority in Orono, Maine. I was, I'm Jewish, and I don't know how many Jews were there in Orono. In Portland, there was a good number of Jews. And I remember going on a bus to school, and somebody said some words to me that I can't say on air, and they weren't nice. And uh, a young lady came up, young girl about my age, came up and, and poked the kid who said it to me. And then I realized I was really different, but I also had a friend. And so we became friends, and I started learning more about her and her own differences. And that led to other friends and learning about them. I've always been curious. I don't know. I do know my mother always said she could tell with whom I was playing Mm. because of the way I sounded after I came home. I never sounded like myself. (laughs) Interesting. Uh, You became a professional oral historian. Well, you know... Professional is hmm, possibly. Um, I just wanted to know stories. I just wanted to know how do things happen. I mean, think about it. How do people live in the early days? How do how do homesteaders thrive? How do they even begin? What makes a woman homesteader from the east come to Utah to become uh, a settler? How does she build her own home? How do, what happens that motivates people? to live lives that today I can barely think about living. Mm. I've never had that. How do, you know, I taught, you know, Utah is really all about mines and the railroad. How did people work the mines? How did the Greeks come to work the mines? How did they, how did they manage to be in some ways denigrated and other ways respected? I mean, these are people taking some of the hardest jobs in Utah and, and they survived it. They not only survived it, they ended up building their own community. Mm-hmm. And how does this happen? How do Basque immigrants become sheep herders? How do they land in Utah? I just don't quite understand everything. Mm-hmm. And I love to know more and more about people and how things work. And, you know, I, well, you ask me. I'm done. <laughs> okay. No, it's very interesting. Uh, you also write in your introduction, this this uh, struck me, you said your dad always told a story in present tense, which uh, I think annoyed your mother. Oh, it did. My dad would sit down, and I hope I don't start imitating him, because I do imitate. He'd come home from work and says, so, so I said to this man, and my, my mother would say, well, what man are you talking about? Well, you know, the client in Aroostook County, I, I talked with him. Well, what do you mean? Well, he, he's, a good, he's a good guy, but he has a way of talking with me. So his, this is what he says to me. And he starts in this present tense, and my mother would get furious and say, it's over, Hal. Why do you keep bringing it up? And I'll never forget. He said, because I want to make it present. And I think that's what I try to do. I don't know a lot. I really don't. That's why I don't know that I'm a professional historian or a historian. I just know that people have histories, and it's really wonderful to share them. And so I don't know how people do what they do. And I have this opportunity to find out not only how they did it, but what they felt like doing it. I also don't know about experiences. You know, why were the Chinese regarded with bigotry, or rewarded with bigotry is what I had. Why, were, why are we such a frightened nation in some ways that we stop accepting people? When did we stop accepting people? And is color really an issue? Is religion really an issue? These things confuse me because I think people are people. And so I wanted to know about 
about them. I also wanted to know, because I'm not a man, I don't know what it's like to build mining equipment. I don't know what it's like to build a beer factory. I don't know what it's like to build a community. And so um, I just start looking. Hmm. And what would you say is that how these stories perhaps changed you, and, and how, would you, how would you say that they possibly would affect and are important to, to other people? Well, for me, I think that they made me realize how little I know, um, that I have to do some more research, that I have to find out more about people. Um, for people like me and people of Utah, I think it's important that we all know who helped build this state? What kind of challenges did they face? And who, didn't, who wasn't able to face the challenge? Who was put down? Who was destroyed? When you look at Topaz, the internment camp, and, and you look at how this one woman said that when the rifles were pointed in, they were not out. They were pointed in. And after... Um, do you know anything about Topaz? Yeah, yes, yes. Uh, but but uh, recount a bit of that. Well, and it was actually, there was a woman in Topaz who, oh, sorry about this. When uh, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, a lot of young people were taken out of their homes with their families, actually told within a matter of days that they would have to leave and they would be taken out of their homes wherever their homes were. And it was in 1941. They were considered, Japanese Americans were considered the enemy aliens by the FBI. There were some 112,000 people of Japanese ancestry living in California and Oregon and Washington. Those are the coastal areas that were thought of being the war zones of the Pacific frontier. They had to surrender their homes. They had to give away their possessions. They gave away their civil liberties. There was no, they didn't go to court. They were just taken away. And I don't know what it's like to have everything taken away from you. And these people, and many of them are now children, because a lot of the older people have, have died. You know, it was quite a while ago. I wonder if you could, uh, and this is, by the way, on page, uh, I think, 182, uh, part of a, a series of... Uh, articles on Japanese Americans in Utah and Topaz. This is the chapter called Bowing to Silence. This, this, this struck me. This is um, the Matsumiya family. Oh, yes. And a, 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 a young, young Japanese American man who, who found work on the railroad, but because of an incident and this paranoia that swept the nation in the, in the war years, he was, he was fired and uh, what if you take it up from there? It's, it's interesting. It's, and, and this title, Bowing to Silence. Well, you know, Bowing to Silence is something that's happened for many years. Uh, the Japanese, very proud, very, um, un, in some ways, not wanting to talk about their past. They just want to live their lives. And now um, some people are speaking up about it. But what happened here was Matsumiya worked as a section foreman in Tintic Junction, it was a remote crossroad between the mining towns of Silver City and Mammoth. It was also a way station for trains traveling between Los Angeles and Salt Lake. There were two freight cars placed parallel to each other, widened and roofed over. That, those two cars became the Matsumiya's new home. Commodities were brought in by the train, water was stored in large tanks, and bathing was limited to once a week. Chio was the wife. She actually, uh, I think she was really young when they married. She planted vegetable gardens. She raised chickens and pigs. She stoked wood-fired stoves, washed clothes by hand, took in isolated, lonely Japanese workers, bachelors during the Depression, and she spanned culinary cultures with Japanese rice and head cheese. The children took the bus to school in Eureka. They had lessons in Jap Japanese at home. And I interviewed this woman, Jean, her daughter, and her home. And she said, my mother enjoyed Buddhist picnics in Salt Lake. And since we had a piano, she invited Mormon parishioners to hold their services in our living room. When Japan bombed Pearl Harbor 
on December 7, 1941, and war was declared, the police searched Japanese homes in Utah for shortwave radios, cameras, and guns. They opened drawers, cupboards, scattering everything to the floor, Jean said. They took my father's shotguns, a twenty-two rifle. His Colt pistol was never returned. In the dead of winter, warm wastewater was diverted onto cold railroad tracks in Garfield, and suspicion, suspicion fell to the Japanese. Jinzaburo, and that's his name, the father, was fired, and he was ordered to leave town within days. Accused with no recourse, the Matsumias, like so many of their countrymen, bowed to silence. They didn't talk about it. They relocated to Eureka so their children could finish the school term. They next went to Payson looking for places to rent. Even a barn would do, Gio said, the mother said, but we were told it wasn't for rent to Japs. They looked towards Salt Lake. You couldn't buy a house east of Main Street, and it was difficult for Japanese to find work, Jean remembered. After 30 years with America's Railroad, her father became a dishwasher. Her mother, who was an expert seamstress, worked at a men's store. Their house, located near 2100 South and West Temple, soon was populated with family, friends, boarders, and chicken. No one mentioned the war. No matter what we felt about the war, we didn't talk about it, not even with our kids. We had to live and eat as usual. We just kept our mouths shut. Hmm. That probably described a lot of Japanese Americans. They just had to sort of suffer through this. They did suffer through this. Um, I don't believe they wanted to talk about it. I'm grateful that people are talking about it now hmm. because we wouldn't know. I don't know how I would feel as an 11-year-old kid going into Topaz and seeing guards pointing their guns at me and saying derogatory things to me when I thought I was there at 11 to be protected. And I do know that very few people were able to find their possessions afterwards. You know, if you leave your home, you don't know what's going to happen to your home. And they found, many of them, there was no home to go to when the war was over. And uh, despite all of this, you, you have a chapter on uh, the soldiers, Japanese-American soldiers, who fought with valor in the war. You know, they did. And maybe you know the, the page better than I do. Um, I was just trying to, trying to find it here. I, I've lost it. But in, in any case, uh, the, these are, you know, it, it's just incredible to, to think about. There's a, there's a photograph that really stri- strikes me. It's a chapter on the young people at Topaz. Uh, I think the headline is uh, the young people were the most resilient. And there's a, there's a young man. He's been released recently from Topaz. He's sitting on the hood of a, <sighs> a, of a car. He, he looks like just any other, you know, young man in his 20s would have been around, except if you look closely, he has, he has Japanese features. He, he was. I actually interviewed him when he was a much older man, and it was one of the first times he began to talk about his story. And such a beautiful young man, and so, in some ways, brave, because he went into Topaz thinking, I will make the most out of it. He was a teenager. Teenagers do. In some ways, it was an experience. It could have been like an adventure. He ended up meeting girls. He ended up playing um, football, and that's what he talked about. He said the guards would shout, Japs are Japs, and he said you couldn't say anything. They could put you in another camp. So if you voiced any opposition, you could be taken away. Nobody wanted to be taken away. But we were busy all the time. We even played football in Delta. We were small. The Delta girls laughed, never thought we'd win, but we did. This boy went into Topaz. He wanted to bring his records. He wanted to bring his jeans. He wanted to bring his James Dean jacket. I mean, this was an American kid. He, he didn't know much about Japan. He knew about San Francisco. And everything was taken away. They lived in a hotel for a while until they could get their bearings and find a, a real home to live. And he did. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll uh, talk more about uh, Hidden History of Utah. This is a new book out from the History Press. It's a collection of columns from the Salt Lake Tribune by Eileen Hallett-Stone, who's my guest today. Eileen Hallett-Stone is author as well of A Homeland in the West, Utah Jews Remembered, and co-author with Leslie Kellen of Missing Stories, an oral history of ethnic and minority groups in Utah. And uh, I, I think 
Island Hallettstone, my favorite section in the book, uh, has to do with, uh, it's called Headstrong, has to do with the women. Oh. And uh, so that's, you know, you said you don't have the experience of being a man, and so that's fascinating to you. It's sort of the opposite with me. And uh, perhaps we can start when we come back from the break with Josie Bassett. Those in eastern Utah would be familiar with her. This is uh, Chapter 44. Um, here's the headline, just to, to wet your whistle. Tough, t- tough homesteader, wedded five men, but was happily married to life itself. Back after the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Colligan Water of Cache Valley, family-owned and operated for more than 62 years, providing Colligan bottled water, salt delivery, or soft and conditioned water. Hey, Colligan Man, service from the man in blue. Online at logan.colliganman.com. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. Eat your fruits and veggies. You've likely heard this statement since childhood. However, research shows that it is good advice. Fresh produce is loaded with natural compounds that protect our bodies from disease. I'm talking about hundreds of compounds called antioxidants and phytochemicals that reduce inflammation in our bodies and improve our immunity. Fruits and veggies are low in calories, which is great for weight control, but they're big in volume, so they fill you up and satisfy hunger. Instead of telling yourself to eat less food, eat more food, eat more of the right food. Slice an apple on your oatmeal, grab a banana for a snack, and start your dinner with a colorful salad. Fill half your plate with fresh fruits and veggies, and you'll be a winner for life. Be well, Utah. With the rise in the oil and gas industry, communities are growing and local economies are booming. We want to hear your stories about living with oil and gas in Utah and surrounding areas. Let us know how the boom is affecting your family, your community, and your local job or business. Tell us what's on your mind when the oil and gas are just down the street. To share your experience, join our Public Insight Network. Visit upr.org and then click on Become a Source. What would you want for your last meal? The last meal is pitch black, which it is, just like the crimes and the executions themselves. A chef who cooks for death row inmates and a Southern Lady's Guide to hosting a perfect funeral. It's food to die for. This week on To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRI, Public Radio International. Sunday mornings at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are exploring Hidden History of Utah. That is the title of a new book from the History Press. The author is Eileen Hallett Stone, and uh, these are uh, basically uh, 58 columns collected together from the Living History column, the Salt Lake Tribune, which uh, comes out, I believe, is it monthly? Um, it's every other week. Every other week. Uh, yeah, fascinating stories. The latest one, I believe, is is on, uh, the headline is, From the Beginning, Utahns Love Their Cups of Coffee. You can find that at the Salt Lake Tribune website. But you can get all of these columns collected in one place in Hidden History of Utah, and it's uh, taken together. It's a fascinating uh, look at uh, the history other than what we normally get, Mormon history and the like. Uh, we've been talking about uh, Topaz, Japanese Americans, and uh, some other history. We're getting into talking about some fascinating women uh, in a section uh, called Headstrong. And uh, Eileen Hallettstone is with us uh, for the rest of the hour. And um, So, Josie Bassett, uh, some people, I guess, uh, in eastern Utah, my hometown of Vernal, uh, we, we've taken trips to uh, Josie's Cabin, as it's called. You have a picture of it here with uh, Josie Bassett. Looks like, uh, can't see, she, she's dressing in trousers, and at a certain point she uh, she gave up dresses and started dressing in trousers. Married to five women, she was a homesteader. She married, or, five, uh, married five men. men except, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> but she was a homesteader. She would have really made waves then. Um, she, she fascinated me because she's actually from, was born in Arkansas, and she was raised in Brown's Hole, and she talks about her mother, who was a Southern belle, who was also a feminist, who rode side saddle. She was a go-getter who could and apparently did when need be rustle for their livelihood. I liked her a lot because she was educated at St. Mary's of the Wasatch in Salt Lake City. 
so she was well-educated. Her parents were well-educated. The family, the Bassett home, had a private library, stringed instruments. They had a portable organ. They welcomed all visitors from businessmen to outlaws with no questions asked. She was an excellent marksman, Josie, and she was independent, she was outspoken, and she was feminine. She was a teenager when she met Butch Cassidy, who worked for the who worked for and hid out at the Bassett Ranch. Some folks thought they were lovers. She said they weren't. That he was just nice to talk with. In 1892, her mother died of appendix, and Josie married rancher Jim McKnight. They had two fine sons before she drove him out of the house at gunpoint. He wasn't bad, she said, but I'd rather live with the coyotes than a drunken man. One right up, intimidated, she killed him. He needed something, she acknowledged, adding mental cruelty to her divorce papers. Her fourth husband was a good farmer and a good man as ever lived. He departed in a drunken stupor. Strychnine residue was found in the bottom of a coffee mug, and it sparked an inquiry. The grieving widow went to court and was acquitted. I imagine she wore a dress when she went to court that day. When another husband mistreated her horse, she gave him 15 minutes to leave. He took five. She settled in Cub Creek, and it was a single homesteader. And as a single homesteader, she cleared brush, camped out, chopped wood. She built her garden, cabin, tended to her animals, and collected mail in neighboring Jensen by horseback. She really did marry a lot of men. And she was also accused of cattle rustling. And she uh, survived thanks to a hung jury. She grew, she was a very strong woman. She loved riding a horse. She said she had never been thrown off once in any horse race. And she lived on her homestead for nearly 50 years, beloved and aggrieved by neighbors. The progressive woman woman never had electricity. She never wanted it. She rarely aged, encouraged physical activity, and was steady on her feet. But in December 1963, she tripped. She broke a hip. She dragged herself indoors, and she held on until May. This woman knew how to live alone. I'm not so sure she knew how to live with men. Mm. But yeah, she yeah. <laughs> was a very <laughs> strong, independent-minded woman, mm. and I really loved her story. Mm. Why do you think she, it sounded like she, you know, didn't have a, a bad life at, at her, you know, home growing up years? Why do you think she went out to this somewhat remote area? I think she was just a wilderness gal. Mm-hmm. I think she loved and thrived being in the wilderness. She loved to... Um, shoot she loved to hunt she apparently she didn't drink and i'm not sure about that but they said she didn't drink i think she was one of the strong women of utah there were a lot of strong women of utah um there was that woman i don't know if you read about her she was um anna rich mark yes very interesting um she was another strong woman who didn't come from united states I'll have to find the page, so you'll have to talk me through some of it. Uh, yes, she uh, she um, very headstrong woman, and in fact, uh, she was described in terms that you say probably wouldn't have been described that way if if she were a man. Yes, you know, there's a lot of that, and I think that's what interested me in women's tales, um, because if a man did what Anna Rich Marks did, which was to acquire mines. Uh, acquire riches, hold real estate, men would be very proud of her. If she were a man, they'd be very proud of him. But because she was a woman, they were not proud. And that always strikes me strange, because we're all equal, I think. And she was not ever considered equal. She did have, she was foul-tempered. Mm. And she, uh, So that, that part was true then. They, she was called foul-tempered. Yes, and she was called a Volga vixen. Yeah. Uh, at a certain point, she's uh, with her husband. They're they're going out to. Uh, she's I think she's bought a mine, hasn't she? Yes, they were on their way to Eureka, and they were waylaid. She was waylaid in Pinion Canyon by two men who installed a toll gate, and they charged a fee for passage. She refused to pay, and an argument ensued. And it's said that her cursing didn't turn the air blue, but the show of guns illuminated her point of view. <laughs> in the end, the toll gate was torn down. The pistols were packed away. And the travelers went on their way. And the access route that had once been a toll road to a mining district became a public-use road. Uh, and later on, I don't know if she got an idea from this, she 
essentially held up the railroad, right? Didn't it she demanded did. a toll. She held up the railroad until the railroad agreed to pay her price to cross her land. She was one smart woman. Mm. Um, people say she was angry all the time. I actually um, don't believe she was. She was just smart. I mean, you have to remember that she came from Europe, from Russia, Russian-occupied Poland, while she was barely in her teens, and she was determined to break the bonds of racism, poverty, and powerlessness. And at 15 years old, she married uh, Mr. Wolf Marx in London and immigrated first to New York, and then she settled in the West. This woman knew early on in her life that the only way she would ever be free was to go after freedom herself. Uh, and including in in the land of the free, she she broke the what would be normally considered to be the you know proper role of of a woman. She did. I don't think she had her proper role of being a woman was exactly who she is, mm. who she was. In fact, I know that she was buried in um, Salt Lake City's congregation, congregation B'nai Israel Cemetery in 1912. And you think, well, if she was so mean, why at her grave site does it show a holding of hands? between supposedly her husband and herself. There were people who said that she slept alone, that her husband didn't sleep in the same bedroom with her. I actually don't buy that either. This woman was alive all the way through. And one of the interesting things about her was, although I read many articles about her meanness or her, you know, ill-temperedness, I couldn't find a picture of her. And I knew there had to be a picture. She was a wealthy woman, and she was vain. There had to be a picture of her. And so would you like me to tell you how we got yeah, Yes, definitely. Um, my husband and I were in nearby, I think, Nephi, when he got a call from Eureka saying we could go to the museum there to look for a picture of Anna Rich Marks. But they said most likely she would, there would be no picture. But I could smell that there was a picture. And so we went to the museum and looked through. I mean, we spent hours looking through photographs, and there wasn't any picture of her. But I kept holding on to the idea that a vain woman would have to have a photograph taken. And so I kept looking. The gentleman who was in the museum, I think, wanted to go home, but I'm a little bit tenacious. That's okay to say. And I just talked to him. I asked him to show me the museum, not just once, but twice. And by the second time, my husband was looking through other drawers. And all of a sudden, when we got back down to the main room, and he said, this gentleman said, it's time to go, a light came through the window. And I am not a religious person. The light came through the window, and you could see all the the particles, you know, because the, the windows weren't clean. And I thought, I know this last place we look will have a picture of her. And we went into the bottom drawer of a long, a long uh, file cabinet, and there was this incredible picture of this woman on a horse with a friend. And it just came. It was like before you even, I even turned the photograph over to see what the name was, I knew it was this woman. She was really stern, sat straight, and she knew what she was doing. Hmm. And that was the picture. I wonder if you could uh, tell me a bit about, uh, this is page 150, I believe. Um, And I'd heard the story kind of tangentially. Marie Ogden, the headline is Psychic Widow Founded Spiritualist Utopia. This is history that (laughs) we don't often hear, and it happened here in Utah. Well, it did. I'm... um, I was very surprised because I had driven through, is it, do you call it Monticello? Yes. Yes. I had driven through Monticello several times, and that was another thing that happened. I, on one of the trips through, driving through, I thought, what happened here? You could almost feel that something happened in this town. And so I started looking up Monticello, and I found this psychic widow who founded a spiritualist utopia. This was a, a rather upper-class woman who, from New Jersey, she was educated, she was uh, an amateur pianist, she was married to a successful insurance executive, raised two daughters, and was active in community affairs and welfare reform. After her husband Harry died from cancer in 1929, 
the grieving wife turned to metaphysics and spiritualism to communicate between this world and the next. That sort of surprised me. I had no idea that she would do that, that she would change her way of living, that she would look to metaphysical studies, that she would end up speaking about uh, this esoteric philosophy across state lines, that she would lecture on the occult and natural disasters and preordained catastrophes, final judgment, reincarnation, resurrection, and redemption. This is a woman who just played the piano. She was a housewife. And all of a sudden, she believed herself to be divinely informed, and she communicated with God through her typewriter. Mm -hmm. So I'm afraid you'd have to read the rest of it, because... Yeah, it's it's a very it's a fascinating tale, and it occurs to me, you know, just just about every state, every area would would have a stereotype. We use those stereotypes as you know, kind of sort of a shorthand, right? But if you think of Utah as you know Mormon beehive, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera, you're missing out on a lot. I think you are. I think the et cetera, et cetera, really wipes out a lot of incredible people, just incredible people. You have the Chinese, you have African Americans. Um, you have Italians, you have, I mean, there's so many people here. There was a traveling Orthodox priest. There was, I think, a time even maybe a traveling rabbi. There were people, in fact, today there's a traveling rabbi in Ogden, I believe. You had underground tunnels in Ogden. I mean, who knew about underground tunnels? There was so much happening here that if you just think of the status quo, you might miss out on a lot. And I think that's why... I really wanted to write about everything and anything that I could think about. But I have to say, I have very good friends, um, and I have at the University of Utah, I get calls. I'll say, do you know about this? Did you know about that? And I have to um, find out about it. So I think I'm a better researcher than I am a talker, but um, it has been, for me, an incredible adventure. And so when I look at these stories, I don't really see me because that's another thing I think it's important when you're gaining, doing research or you're doing interviews, is that you, I don't really want the story to be interfered by me. And I want them to come from the people. So if they're interviews, I will read between the lines if I can. Sometimes when you read, you can know when somebody's trying to tell you something. And that's what I look for. What are they trying to say? And can I find it? So I'd say I'm more of a detective. I hmm. like that. Well, the uh, result of Eileen Hallettstone's detective work is uh, now gathered in a book. It's called Hidden History of Utah. It's uh, out from the History Press. It's a collection of her living history columns from the Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, Fascinating, hidden history of Utah. And we're going to talk more about this. When we come back from a break, I'll have Eileen Hallettstone tell us a fascinating story. I'd never heard of this. A young man during the Depression comes out to Utah for law school ends up on the radio mimicking FDR's voice. This is the the story of uh, Wally Sandek. It's uh, page 158 uh, and much more following the break. UPR explores what your home says about you in its new series, My Address Is. UPR reporters spoke with individuals from all walks of life about how their homes reflect who they are and to discuss close-to-home issues facing our friends and families. Our home was our family, and all we need to do is find a house to put it in. Dairy farming has been a good life for me. Tune in during All Things Considered to hear how your neighbors live with My Address Is. Next time on Living on Earth, pet flea collars kill fleas and ticks, but can be dangerous for the household. When kids come in contact with their pet, which they do on a daily basis, they come into contact with that very toxic pesticide. The EPA will ban some flea collars, but not all and not very soon. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Coming up this morning at 10, right after Access Utah. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering a house-pickled vegetable demi-baguette sandwich with tomato jam. Menu details at crumbbrothers.com. Utah's been the focal point for many brave settlers yearning for a new way of life. And while Utah's Mormon legacy is well documented, there are lesser known stories that contribute to the state's history. 
And uh, many of those are collected in a new book, Hidden History of Utah, out from the History Press. Public historian, author, history columnist Eileen Hallett-Stone looks into the state's forgotten past and presents a collection of tales culled from her Salt Lake Tribune Living History column. Included are stories of newly freed slaves, early suffragists, desert farmers, union men, railroad kings, cattle barons, influential statesmen, and more. Eileen Hallett-Stone is author of A Homeland in the West, Utah Jews Remembered, and co-author with Leslie Cullen of Missing Stories, an oral history of ethnic minority groups in Utah. She lives in Salt Lake City, and we have her for another eight or nine minutes. Eileen Hallett-Stone, this is a, a fascinating story. Wally Sandak, is that how you say his name? Yes. Uh, who, who came out, I guess, for, for law school during the Depression, and of course, as many people had to, he had to scramble Several different jobs. Fascinating what he ended up doing. Well, Sandak, and I don't know if you met the gentleman, he was, he was like always on air. I mean, he knew how to talk. He knew how to be gracious to people. He would say, there was one time he said, good morning, everybody. This is Wally Sandak with your breakfast news bulletins from here, there, and everywhere. And that was in the mid-1930s, and he was speaking from KSL radio studios. He was grateful then. He told me to have a job. He took on a lot of different jobs to make ends meet. And he said that he netted $12 a week to cover tuition, books, and rent at Mrs. Cook's boarding house on 322 University Street. He budgeted 90 cents for daily dining at the coffee cup, Ute hamburger stand, Joe's Vincent's famous cafe, and Scotty's. He said he became a purveyor of fine food. He also had this ability to mimic people. And he caught the ear of KSL's general manager, Earl J. Glade, and he was hired to parody The March of Time, a traveling news format that dramatized documentary events. He impersonated celebrity voices while he anchored the morning news. And in between segments, he would pitch products from chewing gum laxative to pork sausage. When I knew Wally, he could handle anything. He was never really put off by anything until... He was sort of stunned by people later in life. He was he loved Roosevelt, President Roosevelt. He Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He said Roosevelt was everybody's father. He was incredible, incredible at the same time. He restored the faith we lost in America through the last days of Hoover's administration. He wasn't afraid to make the government work for the people, to stop foreclosures on farmlands and homes to close and reopen banks with guarantees for deposit, commence a social security program, generate jobs for the unemployed, and put city kids into work camps to make mention out of them. Mention is a Yiddish word meaning good folk, good folk. In 1942, he served in the Navy. In 1946, he retired from broadcasting. Over the years, he got involved as a liberal Democrat and a political activist. And in 1952, he was elected Salt Lake County Chairman. By 1960, he was a delegate to the Democratic Convention in Los Angeles. He never really, um, he was just a good person. He said, if you make up your mind to get into politics, there's no way you can really lose, because organizational politics is hard work, and most people shy away from it. In 1967, Utah Governor Calvin L. Rampton urged Sandak to run for the office of chairman of the State Democratic Committee. He said, after I had been nominated, a man stood in front of the audience of 3,000 people and charged that I should be disqualified. In 1967, Salt Lake Tribune article reported the interloper requested a recess for 20 minutes to consider that their nominee is a man who doesn't believe that Jesus is Christ. He didn't say I was Jewish, Sandak remarked. I wasn't frightened, but my head reeled. Within moments, the article concluded the offender was hooted out of the Coliseum, and Sandak was elected by acclamation. Hmm. I, I think he represents how you face the challenges as a gentleman or a gentlewoman. You face the challenges, you go on. But that doesn't mean that you go on without being pained that you go on without being affected. But he actually just took everything he learned to become a better person. He died in 2011 at the age of 97. And I, his wife, Helen, told me that she found his typewriter and under the platen, yellowed paper, and the beginning of a story, his, 
waiting to be finished. Mm. Yeah, that was a great way to end that that, that column. He he still had was telling his stories at the what was it ninety seven? Yeah, ninety seven. Yeah. yeah. I wonder. Um, you have several chapters on Utah's minority populations. They often encounter discrimination. There's a chapter on um, racial discrimination against uh, African Americans, page fifty five. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that. You, in, in the, you know, later on, you thumb through this. You have Chinese immigrants on Plum Alley, and uh, and of course uh, m- many others. You had uh, Basque and uh, and Greeks and uh, Latinos. There's many minority populations. Well, on the first one you spoke about, the abstract. There was an abstract that depicts a regrettable era of racial discrimination. And what's interesting is it happened in my own neighborhood. I, um, it was just a very nice, beautiful October day when my neighbor came up to me and she said that she discovered an abstract of title defining much of what is now called Roslyn Heights. And to me, it was striking to learn several things. One was that in 1855, our neighborhood was part of 160-acre bounty land granted to officers and soldiers engaged in the military service of the United States. It was a sucker punch to read that no part of this bounty could be sold, transferred, granted, or conveyed to any person not of the Caucasian race, and that the covenant would exist for 25 years before becoming null and void. And you have to think that in 1847, black pioneers joined the handcart movement traveling westward. By 1850, nearly 85 African Americans lived in the Utah Territory. Some were free blacks. More were slaves of Southern whites who had joined the LDS Church. Utah's black population totaled 118 by 1870. Most African Americans worked in Salt Lake City or they headed to Ogden. Others homesteaded farmland in Union Fork, Murray, Cottonwood Holiday, and Evergreen Street. In 1886, there were Buffalo Soldiers. There were 584 Buffalo Soldiers of the U.S. 9th Cavalry, and they were garrisoned at Fort Duchesne on the remote Ute Reservation. A decade later, some 600 U.S. 24th Infantry soldiers, black soldiers, with wives and children, arrived at the Fort Douglas, and they quadrupled Utah's black population. But, you know, they were isolated in uh, what they called the American Siberia. They were rarely seen. The highly regarded 24th Infantry was more visible, and this is what historian Ron Coleman said. He's at the University of Utah, that... They faced discrimination by a white populace that believed in white superiority and black mm. inferiority. These are, these are things, when you read them, they hit you because you go, what is anybody thinking? How can they think this way? Why would people think that the color of your skin would automatically make you inferior? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a sad history, and uh, but one that needs to be told. We're uh, just about out of time, uh, and there's much else in this book. Of course, uh, urge people to read it. Hidden History of Utah. Eileen Hallett Stone is the author. One chapter we won't have time to talk about. It's in the 1890s. Utah's women found freedom on bicycles. There's oh many, yes, many, yeah, that was so delightful to read, and rather surprising. I had no idea that men were so frightened that the clothes that women wore and getting on a bicycle might stir up some sexual feeling. And that was one of the reasons they didn't want women on bicycles. They didn't want women were not wanted um, because of the clothes, that they were not the usual clothes. I mean, people had to start wearing, like, pantaloons, trousers, and yeah, that a, made a difference. It's, yeah. a, it's a fascinating history. You'll have, to, you'll have to read about it. Get the book. Eileen Hallett-Stone has been our guest. The latest book is uh, Hidden History of Utah. It's out from the History Press collection of her Salt Lake Tribune Living History uh, columns. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we thank you so much for listening to Access Utah. We invite you to join us tomorrow. We'll have a conversation with Leslie and Stephen Halper. They are University of Cambridge professors and authors of a book, Tibet, An Unfinished Story. This story, they say, has parallels to Ukraine. Russia, they say, is chipping away at the West Resolve, chipping away at Ukraine. And China may well do more of that in South Asia. The Halpers, Tibet, tomorrow on the program. Hope you join us. Commentator Gina Wickwar. 
A little over a month ago, I had my left knee replaced with a titanium gizmo that, with luck, will enable me to walk without having to resort to Tylenol every four hours. This leaves the other knee and two hips that could eventually be replaced, turning me into a totally unnatural being. But it seems this is what we're headed for these days. To be sure, this is not altogether unexpected at my time of life. It's truly amazing how many older people I encounter who've had their knees, hips, backs, and shoulders either replaced or rewired and who are mighty glad to have done so. It's given them a new lease on life, allowing them to hike and walk and bike and swim and do things they were unable to do for years because of aging cartilage and bones. So while I feel a little like a bionic person in the making, I must admit to looking forward to long walks and travel to faraway places that have certainly been out of my reach in the last few years. What's amazing to me is that this surgical renewal doesn't just apply to older folks. For the last three weeks, for three days a week, I've been doing physical therapy. Strange as it may seem, half the people in therapy are under 30. Yes, if you think aching joints and new knees are the sole province of the over 60 crowd, think again. By asking around, I've found out the major causes of the young people's ailments. They are in this order. Skiing, soccer, football, basketball, and running. The first time I ever heard about a torn meniscus was when our daughter's college roommate had to have hers scope. The roommate played basketball. Several of the youngsters at physical therapy have already had their ACLs repaired because of skiing. Then there's the young teller at the credit union who took one look at my cane and said, woo-wee, that's not nearly as bad as my ACL getting wrecked playing soccer. And on and on go the grisly stories. Our very own daughter, skier, marathoner, etc., is also laid up as I write. She's the victim of a bad skiing accident that destroyed her ACL and broke part of her kneecap. Ugh. Her accident happened about the same time as my knee injury, so we have had a kind of mother-daughter love fest this last month, exchanging texts about our painkiller schedules, sending pictures of our legs and our CPMs, a cute little device that automatically bends your leg up and down to prevent scarring and other post-operative problems, comparing our icing regimens and reporting on how well we are doing our degrees of flexibility. I'm actually ahead by 20 degrees, but who's keeping score? In truth, Mel has the harder deal. A repaired ACL takes a long while to heal and requires wearing a stiff boot that locks your leg so it can't be bent. It's hard to get around in. I've been hobbling around on a cane for weeks now and sometimes forget to use it. Still, in a perverse way, the fact that Mel and I have been in this together has made it seem a little better for both of us. On the other hand, as her two brothers told us the other day on the phone, next time we need a little mother-daughter bonding time, maybe we should really just plan a vacation together in Maui. We agreed they have a point. This is Gina Wickwar. <laughs>